Good morning. Man, getting up here before, like, oops, because, like, that's probably been sitting with a lid on it for a few days, and now I'm, like, hot. I'm, like, okay. And there's, like, nothing, like, super emotional, I think, in, like, my talk today, but I'm, like, something's going to make me cry, so I don't know what it is. Um, I'm so happy to be back with you so soon. It's only been a couple of weeks, which is such a delight. Um, on the first day of October, so, like, or Witchtober, as we call it in my house. Um, um, I'm a little resentful that it's gonna be 85 degrees today, but I still wore a long sleeve black shirt and pants. I'm just like, it's, I don't care, it's fall. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually gonna start with a reading today. Um, the reading is from this tiny little book um, by Adrian Marie Brown. It's called We Will Not Cancel Us. Um, it's a short collection of essays, um, mainly around cancel culture. Um, and like resisting the practice of exiling someone or rejecting someone after they've caused harm. So that's where I found this excerpt. It's from one of the essays called We Are Still Beginning. She writes, listen with why as a framework. People mess up. We lie, exaggerate, betray, hurt, and abandon each other. When we hear that something bad has happened, it makes sense to feel anger, pain, confusion, and sadness. But to move immediately to punishment means that we stay on the surface of what has happened. To transform the conditions of the wrongdoing, we have to ask ourselves and each other, why? Even, especially when we are scared of the answer. It's easy to decide a person or group is shady, evil, or psychopathic. The hard truth, hard because there's no quick fix, is that long-term injustice creates most evil behavior. The percentage of psychopaths in the world is just not high enough to justify the ease with which we attempt to label that condition to others. In my mediations, why is often the game-changing, possibility-opening question. That's because the answers rehumanize those we feel are perpetrating against us. Why often leads us to grief, abuse, trauma, Often, undiagnosed mental illnesses like depression or bipolar disorder, difference, socialization, childhood scarcity, loneliness. Also, why makes it impossible to ignore that we might be capable of a similar transgression in similar circumstances. We don't want to see that. Demonizing is more efficient than relinquishing our worldviews, which is why we, we have slavery, holocausts, lynchings, and witch trials in our short human history. Why can be an evolutionary question. So ends that reading. So the title of today's talk is Let's Look at This Another Way, or Reframing as a Pathway to Loving. And I'm excited to spend some time with you exploring what living with this why in mind could look like and the power of reframing our initial perception of a situation. I'm interested in looking at how we can deepen our connections and our capacity for love when we spend a little more time investigating and becoming more thoughtful about how we identify other people's choices, especially when they hurt or confuse us. So since I was with you just a few weeks ago, I've had a few big weekends. Um, last weekend, I was back at Camp Bluebird with Kelly, um, serving as the chaplain at that weekend retreat um, for people living after a cancer diagnosis. I've talked to you about it before. I've been doing it for several years. And I came home from camp and landed directly in my three-year-old's birthday party. 
Um, and the weekend before that, which is where most of this little story rests, my wife and I spent a frenzied full 36 hours in New York City for our wedding anniversary. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout that weekend in New York and ever since, I've been living in this entranced preoccupation with this subject of reframing on my mind. All about this powerful, what I'm feeling is liberating practice of consciously reframing a concept in order to free it from negative stigma or an entrenched perception of this is how it is and it is bad. And I suppose this is a bit of a return to our repeated conversation around black and white thinking that continues to pop up in our searching together. And it also feels like a newly forming spiritual practice, another one of those habits or those buoys that is, they're gonna carry me throughout my days. See, I went into New York this New York weekend with this already on my mind. After what would become a series of three deepening, glaring examples of the power of this type of work. It started when I was in a conversation with someone who works as a child behavior specialist, referencing back to my earlier share. I may have been repeating a line I've shared from time to time to describe the unexpected difficulties of parenting with my oldest being only five. I know I'm still very much a newbie at all of this. But what I've said to people and what I said in this conversation is that before I was a parent, I never expected two things. One is the berry budget. Like I never knew I would spend this much money on stra strawberries and raspberries and blueberries because they <laughs> live like royalty just eating berries for breakfast. <laughs> and two is that I never expected to have to or to feel like I have to engage in this level of like mind games on like a regular basis to try to get my kids to do what I need them to do. Like, what's today's tactic? What's today's trick? Like, how are we gonna get around this? Like, yesterday, my five-year-old had to get a flu shot, and it was just like, in the end, I just went with bribery. Like, I just didn't know, I didn't know what else to do to get her not to lose it in there, right? <sighs> so, I'm admitting some vulnerability a little bit more as I do so, or share this next bit, because what I went on to say in this conversation is that while I try to argue against this perception, I often feel like my kid is trying to manipulate me in order to get what they want. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> I'm not proud that their actions hit me this way. It just like sometimes really feels like it's true. And when my partner in conversation, this behavior specialist said next, what she said next, like this was the first seed that planted this idea in my head. It would be the first of a trio of experiences within a week that got me feeling like there was a point that something or someone was trying to make to me, something that I was supposed to pay attention to. She said, a good reframing, her word, for they are manipulative, would be that they are resourceful. They are simply learning how to get what they want. They're just too young to understand that their tactics aren't always good choices. And when she did that, she gave me this new language, right? This new window through which to look at this behavior. And I felt myself, just as I did now, breathe this sigh of relief. It felt a little bit like deflation, but it wasn't in a bad way. It was relaxing. I'd been holding on to this feeling or this judgment and then that second arrow of the shame around that judgment. But when she said that, when I was prompted for that reframe, my heart softened 
in a way that I had been longing to feel. I had new language now. Language that I would immediately start deploying, like in conversation with my wife when the kid is acting crazy and she looks at me and she's like, my wife is like, ah, and I'm like, resourceful. She's being resourceful. <laughs> but I also, as well as the language, I had a more loving, more open place with which I could make decisions or choose my next steps. And most importantly, I was given the capacity to experience these difficult moments with my child coming from a more loving place. So, a few days later, I was with my wife on that New York trip. The trip was short, and it was during what is typically our one weekend a year without kids on a trip. So we had made a million plans, like a zillion things to do. And one of those, we did this mid-morning on Saturday. It was a beautiful day. We took a trip to the Tenement Museum in the Lower East Side. If you haven't heard of it, the Tenement Museum is this revered example of what it means to preserve history in an experiential way. It's made up of a few old tenement buildings on a block on Orchard Street. So these buildings were, in the past, these crowded apartment buildings, right, that were occupied typically by immigrant families in small apartments, living with, by our standards, what would be way more people than should fit in like a three-bedroom or so apartment. It was during our tour of one of those apartments that we learned the story of the Wong family. This was a Chinese family that had immigrated to the United States in the mid-century, mid-20th century, um, after bans first created by the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882 that then continued on for some fashion for decades and decades, finally ended in 1965. So as part of this story, we learned that the husband in the family, the father in the family, had actually moved to America several years, more than a decade before his wife and child, and had gotten to the U.S. while that legislation that banned most Chinese immigration was still in place. So this means, using today's popular dehumanizing terms, that it is likely that Mr. Wong was an illegal immigrant. So it was during this part of the story told by our guide that another guest in our group raised his hand and asked, how can Mr. Wong have been able to arrive before his family if it had been illegal for him to immigrate to America? And our tour guide explained warmly that there were always people practicing, his words, forms of creative resistance when unjust laws were in place. And as part of that movement of creative resistance, Mr. Wong must have found a way to make it to the United States. Our guide offered no definition of that term that he offered, creative resistance, but I felt my breath like catch lightly in my throat because what he had done lovingly, compassionately, and in my instantly formed opinion rightfully, reframed this concept or idea of illegal immigration to an act of creative resistance against an unjust system. I want to rest on this example for just a moment, on this reframe, because I think that term does something brilliant. We all know that the rhetoric in this country around immigration particularly around those who make their way here outside of the channels and systems that the government has deemed allowable. There, the rhetoric often demonizes people as criminals, as scofflaws, or as too lazy to go about the process in the right way. Labeling these people in these positions instead as members of a creative resistance immediately invokes a sense of awe and respect for the choice to look at a system that is broken and unjust and say, I choose a different path. 
one that places the same level of importance on the needs of my loved ones and my community and even me as on anyone else. It could also communicate that the only way to break down an unjust system, possibly, is to work outside of it and to show that another way is possible. Now, my intention with this example is not to spark a conversation about immigration in this country or even to preach about it. Not today. My intention is to simply try and illustrate how taking a step back and looking at a situation or um, a concept with a prioritized lens of compassion can actually completely shift your mindset about that. It can actually change the way you perceive whole groups of people, not just your one relationship with your family member, if you allow it to. And it was after this museum tour, which was brilliant in a hundred different ways that I don't have time to go into here, that I really started buzzing around this idea of reframing and what room it could open up in our hearts and in our spirit. I already knew what it could do on a micro scale just for me and due to the recent, due to the recent conversation about my child's tactics. And as we walked away from Orchard Street to our next stop on our itinerary, I couldn't stop turning this idea over in my head. I couldn't stop thinking about what broad socialization and exploration of reframing others' actions, of asking why, could do for our collective spirit. What if when we noticed our heart hardening towards something, for example, the behavior of a loved one or the choices of a group of people that don't seem quite real to us because we can't fathom their circumstances or imagine because of our privilege having to make what look like desperate choices, what if we noticed that we were judging, or when we noticed that we were judging, or generalizing, or dismissing, we developed a habit of asking ourselves if we would feel the same way if we looked at things from another angle, with a perspective of compassion. So later that evening, the third example of this concept rang itself like an unringable bell, in language that couldn't have been more straightforward. So while going to the Tenement Museum was something both my wife and I loved and were looking forward to, it was most definitely an activity that Ashley picked. She has a master's degree in public history and archives, so the work done at that museum is something she could not be more passionate about. So that means I picked our evening activity. And our activity for that evening um, was something I'm physically incapable of not doing when I go to New York. We went to a Broadway show. Like, I have to do that. And so the musical I picked for us to see was called Kimberly Akimbo. It's a new show. I found that many people haven't heard about it yet in my circles here at home. But it won the Tonys for Best Musical this year, for Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress in a Musical. And it was written by someone who co-wrote several great shows. So I was like, the original cast is still there. I don't know much about it. Like, we should go. We should see it. And I won't go too deep into the plot, but I'll give you the premise. The premise of the show is that the main character, Kim, is a 16-year-old living with a genetic disorder that has caused her to age rapidly. She looks like she is in her 70s, and she experiences the same type of health struggles as we would be expected for someone that age. So we learn at the top of the show that people with Kimberly's condition aren't expected to live past 16, which is the age she's just turned. So she's entering a frightening season of her expected-to-be-short life. I know it sounds really sad, but it's actually a really lovely, funny show. To make matters worse for Kimberly, she's also recently moved to a new town. So she's faced with the heavy task of trying to connect with her classmates through this barrier of obvious difference. And during an early song in the show, when Kimberly is forming an unexpected bond as well as a crush on another student, 
She sings to herself these simple words. With a change in perspective, nothing's defective. And well, considering what had been on my mind that week, and most especially that day, I heard myself chuckle to myself quietly at that sweet, easy line. Because not only, probably just because I was paying a particular type of attention, but not only was I now being delivered three examples in as many days of a concept and a spiritual habit that I now felt called to intentionally develop, but also because simply she was right. In sharing these experience with you, experiences with you, to hearken back to our last time together, in sharing these moments of direct experience with you, I'm hoping to illustrate a concept. And I'm sure this is not wholly new to any of you. But I know that in my own life, I can always use more rigor around integrating more compassion into my reactions or perceptions of a situation, especially in an instance when we feel as though we have been wronged or even harmed. We're all familiar with the advice to assume positive intent, right? It seems most of us, with me high in those ranks, tend to jump instead to a perceived negative intent when someone has done something wrong that angers us or puts us in an uncomfortable spot. This happens to me a lot at work. I find out someone has taken some action that conflicts with my own team's priorities or that I think will undermine a goal of mine in some way, and I start thinking to myself about all the reasons why this person who has ticked me off is clearly trying to mess with me or gain power in some way. And when I find myself in those moments, when I'm at my best, I'm able to remind myself that assuming positive intent is probably a good idea. Because just as I'm not sitting around at work trying to come up with ways to harm other people, whoever it is who has caused me friction probably wasn't doing that either, because why would they? But I would suggest that this idea I'm presenting around developing a habit of not just assuming positive intent, but of actually reframing, it goes a little bit beyond. It goes beyond letting someone off the hook for trying to mess with you or being some sort of low-key villain. Reframing your perspective requires that you dig a little bit deeper and actually ask yourself why, as Brown suggests, why someone or a group of someones is behaving the way they are. Going back to Brown's reading, she states, why is an evolutionary question. And I believe that's because it causes us to pull ourselves out of our gut instinct, to place judgment on someone or to perceive them as bad in some way. When we do this, when we ask, for example, why someone is being manipulative, we may come up with the answer that they are feeling desperate to gain some control over a situation. Because in their mind, not resisting that situation causes them to feel like they are allowing something to happen that they don't want or that they are even scared or anxious about. Looking at the situation this way, with a why in mind, allows me to start opening up the channels of compassion within me. If I am looking at the situation again with a loving heart, I may be able to come, come to the conclusion that this person is simply trying, even if with frustrating tactics, to influence the outcome that they feel is best or safest for them. Trying different methods to get the outcome you feel that you need isn't necessarily being manipulative. Our investigation of why can help us to label their actions now as resourceful. There is a lot more room for love when dealing with a resourceful person instead of a manipulative one. 
Our why has led us to more love. One method that helps us to integrate this practice is to remind ourselves that just as we know ourselves not to be fixed beings who are always operating from the same emotional, logical, or spiritual place, that those around us, they are also swimming in that ever-moving and ever-changing current. This means we can't guess someone's motive because they're just different today than they were yesterday, just as we are different today than we were yesterday. Even if we believe we know someone well, the truth is, when they act in a way that bothers us, hurts us, or even harms us, we can, with love and compassion for ourselves as well, remind ourselves that when it feels safe, we need to ask why. We can't just make a guess, even if it feels educated. And this can help us when facing larger, more complicated struggles as well, outside of interpersonal relationships. In their book, Active Hope, Joanna Macy and Chris Johnstone spend a few hundred pages teaching the practice of reframing, or as they call it, restoring, our current circumstances that can seem dire or helpless. Think about circumstances like climate change and injustice, like large social issues. They share these tools of restoring, storying, if I'm articulating that well, as a means of helping us, in their words, face the mess we're in without going crazy. They suggest larger panoramic reframes in order to find hope. For example, when working in a particular justice movement and feeling hopeless, they suggest we can reframe our own source of strength, not just as ours alone, but as the strength of a connected universe. They write, the expression act your age takes on a different meaning when we see ourselves as part of an amazing flow of life that started on this planet more than three and a half billion years ago. There's a lot of power there. There's a lot of hope to be gained alongside love when you pause and try to look at things from a new way. There is liberation in finding ways to unglue ourselves from our initial perceptions. And we could all use more of that. From interpersonal interactions to large community or even societal scale problems, the art of zooming out, asking why, looking at things through a new lens or from a connected or collective point of view can be like waving a magic wand or putting on a new pair of glasses with a new prescription. We see the world in a new way. We have a fuller set of information and hopefully we are doing so because we have found more of what we sing about. We have found a place with more love somewhere. And again, I'm not great at all of this, my friends. As I share these thoughts with you, I do so not just with the intention of sharing tools and ideas with you, but also of working to further entrench these tendencies in myself. We all know our work of loving the world is never done, and that we always could stand more capacity to do so. My prayer for each of us today is that we get better at asking why, and we get better at investigating, we become masters of the reframe when we first want to tell ourselves a story that constricts our hearts. So let us continue to be ever greater practitioners of opening our hearts. Maybe we can find some joy in zooming out. And let's start asking why as a loving practice. And let's keep on building this new way together. May it be so.